Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Ian, and uh, I get the great privilege of being one of the leaders here at Glasgow Grace. Uh, hey, who enjoyed the weekend away? Wasn't it great? Uh, such a wonderful thing for us to be able to do as a church. It felt like a really significant moment. It was so lovely just to look around the campsite and see people connecting and going deeper together in conversation, praying for one another, um, having fun together, serving together. I was so impressed. There was a lot to do. And actually everyone just mucked in, very gracious with each other. Uh, it, was a, yeah, it was a really wonderful time. If you weren't there, can I also say we missed you. And next year, we hope to see you there. <laughs> Sound good? Uh, we have a meeting on Wednesday night, uh, just a kind of debrief, the team that was involved, uh, headed up by Esther. So if you could pray for that, that'd be great, just so that we can get some guidance for what uh, we want to do next year as a church. But there is also a form that you can fill in. You'll have got it in two emails this week, uh, not to bombard you, sorry. Um, but there are two, and uh, one of them was our, our church news that we have every week. You can find it in there, and then there's one, uh, if you signed up for, for the, the weekend away, you'll get it in that one as well. So please do fill in that form, that will really help inform that conversation. Great. We're back in John. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, and uh, we're excited to be back there. So John 3, 22 through 36. And I want to begin, not there, but by talking a little bit about some of the context that we have for Palm Sunday. For the triumphal entry that Jesus, uh, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem and which we celebrate today. And actually that context comes uh, 1,500 years prior with King David on his deathbed, beginning of 1 Kings. And Adonijah, one of his sons, sees his chance. He gets strategic. He sidles up beside Joab, Israel's great military leader. And then he sidles up next to Abiathar, this great priestly leader in the nation. Behind closed doors, together they scheme. Adonijah is coronated king. But the thing is, David had already said that Solomon was to be king. After God had made a promise to him and his family that through his line would come an eternal kingdom. Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan, they get wind of what's going on. David's not really capable at this time, but they work it out. And so they go to David and they say, look, this is what's been happening. And David says, get the royal mule out. His version of the Mobile or Air Force One. And he puts Solomon on it. And instead of having a, a little private coronation, trying to sneak in behind the rest of the nation so that they can make Adonijah king behind closed doors in secret, actually this is a very public walking into Jerusalem and the crowds gather around and get excited about getting behind Solomon, David's chosen king. And one king records for us that the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with sound. Sounds like quite a celebration, doesn't it? In the same way that Solomon's entry into Jerusalem called out Abiathar 
and the other religious leaders as fakes, motivated by position and power, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, calling out the religious elites in Jerusalem in his day who were praying on street corners, making it all about them, and needing the positions they thought their own righteous deeds deserved. And then, the same way that Solomon's coronation exposed Joab, this military leader, as powerless in God's kingdom, Jesus was declaring that even mighty Rome, with all its military power, was not really in charge. Here, riding on a humble humble donkey and not a mule, was the humble king, the true king. The jostling for position and power around him has never stopped. He is the king of kings, the true king. But since Genesis 3, people have been jostling for position and power. It's human nature. It's our new nature, or our old nature, I should say, in sin. It's the nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve. We want to be like God in our own little and sometimes not so little dominions. Even Solomon, like David before him, fails then to live up to what it meant to be king. But Jesus never did. And now here, at the end of chapter 3, John is turning our attention back to John the Baptist and his disciples. And we have this situation where Jesus is baptizing downriver on the east of the Jordan. And then we also have John the Baptist and his disciples baptizing in the east of the Jordan in Judea. Wait, that's wrong. John is upstream. He's upstream at uh, a spring to the west of the Jordan. None None of you probably even really care about this. But... It's good, it's good to be factual. Um, and actually, Jesus is baptizing down river. So during a discussion between John's disciples and a Jew about ceremonial washing, probably about what kind of purification is required for Jews to enter into worship and that relationship that there is there with baptism, Jesus and his disciples end up coming up in the conversation. And John the Baptist's disciples come to their, their rabbi and they say, look, he's taking a role. It's unbelievable. We're supposed to do the baptizing. What's going on? Why have they taken our position? This is the thing we're supposed to do. Did he even ask you first? And everyone is going to him. They're jealous. What about our ministry? And of course, not everyone was going to him. But have you noticed that hyperbole, exaggeration comes out when we're annoyed? The problem these disciples of John the Baptist have, the problem Abiathar the priest and Joab the military leader and Adonijah the son of David all had, and the problem we all face is the same one. The discontentment 
that John's disciples feel is the same urge that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's the nerve center of all humanity's problem. The slithering whisper of Satan's lie that God is somehow holding back on us and that our eyes will be opened and we will be like God. It's so insidious we barely notice the temptation every time it comes in all parts of life. That would be the desire, the position of glory for ourselves. Sometimes that's to be recognized in a position. At other times, it's just attention-seeking. Even if that's just having others feel sorry for us. It can be the need to prove we were justified to think or do a certain thing. Or simply just to know that we are efficient and proficient at this thing or that. It's pride, and there are many versions of it. Whatever form plagues us, known or unknown, these verses show us two glorious, simple antidotes. The first is this. We can be content with Christ. John's reply is another, don't look at me, stop looking here. Look to Jesus, verse 27. A person can only receive from heaven what is given him. Guys, why does that upset you? You can imagine him having this chat with the disciples like, come on, don't you get it yet? We have our job to do and we must find contentment in doing it while serving Jesus. Not in the role itself, but in serving Christ. Our job, prepare the way. Prepare the way for Jesus. Make a path for Christ. Lay down the palm branches. And actually, that is our role in life. All of us. That is where you can find contentment. You will not find contentment in continually chasing your own self-glorification. But where we find that we're in a place where we can surrender to the idea of being content in Christ alone, there will we, be, we will be satisfied. There we can find joy. This is God's plan not yours and not mine. What kind of planning are you doing for your life right now? Whose plans are they? Unlike his disciples, John the Baptist is not unsettled by the growing popularity of Jesus. It's always been clear for John. Chapter 1, verse 20, he's, he's already said he's not the one He's not the Savior. He's not the Messiah, the Christ, but the one who makes his whole ministry about the one to come. That's our role. But I wonder if you asked, what does that role look like for me now? And honestly, usually, the answer comes in what you're already doing. 
And if there is a discontentment in what you're already doing, then that could be a sign that you're not truly seeking for the glorification of Christ, but for self-glorification. And we are all guilty of it. We all find ourselves drawn back to that. I don't want us to think that this is just one or two of us. This is a temptation for all of us in different ways. When John the Baptist starts explaining this through a marriage in verse 29, he makes him and his disciples the friend who attends the bridegroom. Essentially a best man. Now everyone knows it's not about the best man when you go to a wedding, right? Their job is kind of to get out of the way to make the day great for the groom and for the bride. You've all been to those weddings, though, where the best man gets a little bit too big for his boots. But probably not as bad as this one. This is Bryant making a speech from Illinois. And this is his, well, it was his best mate. <laughs> He's sitting next to him. And they've ju- these two have just got married. Bryant, halfway through his speech, he's had a few too many drinks decides that he is going to reveal his undying love for that woman there. A year later, now, can I just interject here, little comment. The internet kind of glorifies this as a love story. I'm like, this is not a good love story. They're already married. They've made promises to one another. They have dedicated their lives to each other. They've said that they're going to be together for until their dying days. A year later, these two break up. And Brian is now married to the woman who sat there. And they have four kids. Now, that is the kind of upstaging that you want to avoid in your life. Jesus is supposed to be the one who gets all the attention. He is supposed to be the one who gets all the glory. But let's be honest, often our lives look more like that. We look more like that best man. John was to prepare the way for Jesus, the bridegroom who had come from heaven to earth to become one with his bride, the church. Sitting in those first century synagogues, particularly in Ephesus, where we know that this uh, gospel was uh, widely read, they would recognize the imagery of John's language, the extra significance, and we should too. The prophet Isaiah said this, No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Then Hosea 2, 16-20 says this, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me 
my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Isn't it remarkable? Jesus is the king of heaven. He comes to earth where he is rejected by the people he came to save and who are made in his image. And yet he still came, not simply as all-powerful king, but he came as loving husband. God would be well within his rights to come and deal with his rebellious subjects as they deserve. By nature, we've seen that through John already, by nature we have positioned ourselves to work against the glory of God, to be the enemies of God, instead of living our lives to his glory. But God doesn't simply declare, I'm God, now listen to me, you wretched little creatures. He looks on us in our lowly estate and he is filled with affection and love. And of course, we now have in the pages of our New Testament these beautiful passages about how we are joined to Jesus, our groom, getting ready to see him face to face and one day be with him forever. All of us, whether we have been married or not in this life, if we put our faith in Christ, we'll be part of the most loved bride in the best marriage that has ever existed. Particular message for single people. Your marriage on earth does not define you. Your marriage to Christ does. Sometimes the church gets that desperately wrong. But actually all, ma- all marriages are supposed to do, as wonderful as they are, is point to the better marriage. It's ultimately what they're about. So if you're single in this room, can I remind you, your identity is not in whether you get married or not. It's not in some great romance story with someone out there who you maybe have or haven't or will or won't meet. It's in the fact that Jesus, who has adored you since before the beginning of time, has come on a rescue mission, not just to save you, but to join himself to you and be your groom, to be your husband, who will be with you not just for this life, but for eternity. Revelation 21 tells us we will be the bride, the wife of the Lamb, That's where our beauty is. Beauty is defined by the gazing eyes of Christ who looks at us clothed in righteousness and thinks, wow, isn't my bride beautiful? Men, in this moment, in this picture, get used to being the feminine side of this picture and being loved and led. Partly because all the other roles that we have in life, including those of us who are husbands, will be absolutely dreadful at doing that unless 
we're following our husband, our groom, Jesus. There's something here in verse 21, uh, sorry, verse 29, that I really don't want us to miss. John's joy is to hear his bridegroom's voice. It's not in the impression that others have for him or his work. It's not in his own status. It is in Christ. It is only here that our own status can diminish. The honor and respect that others give us begins to fade and still we can rejoice. You could lose your job. You could end up in a position where for whatever reason you lose the honor of people around you and still find reason to rejoice. Only can that happen when you are so tied in your life to the glory of Christ instead of your own. His joy is in Jesus and his mission to reconcile humanity to God, the bridegroom coming to bring union between this kind of corrupt and undeserving people and the God who loves them is his joy. The joy is in seeing Jesus out of his great love coming to beckon his church, us, down the aisle. Is your joy found there or is your joy found elsewhere? And actually, when it comes to the church... We especially, together, as God's gathered people, should be displaying something of this. So every Grace Kids meeting, every one-on-one with, believers, uh, with other believers in coffee shops, every opportunity to share the good news about Jesus with others, every Grace community you attend, every Sunday meeting you attend, everything that we do, whether it's just opening the door for someone or saying hi to someone for the first time, all of it must be with a prayer that says, he must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. How do I get out of the way so people see Jesus? So the first thing to say is that we can be content with Christ. Second thing to say is that we can be content in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In verse 31, John the evangelist gives the explanation, the little commentary as to why John the Baptist wouldn't even consider himself as comparable to Jesus. Now, although the the authority, and that's how he begins, he begins with, with Jesus' authority, although it flows from God in heaven, John the evangelist wants us to see that heaven's authority doesn't bellow, I am this great God and you're not, so now do what I say like many have done over the centuries. Hitler tried to manipulate and control through many things, including God. Now, Hitler found that he could describe God as almighty God, and he could talk about how commanding God was, But he didn't and couldn't talk of his love. And if that's all God was, this commanding God, this ruler, who could offer us forgiveness and then treat us as if we'd kept the rules, rules that we probably wouldn't 
have much desire to keep anyway, then actually this wouldn't be good news, it would be pretty bad news. One of Lewis's uh, union professors, Mike Reeves, described this kind of God like a speed camera. Imagine, as a speed camera captures you doing something like, let's say, 38 miles an hour in a 30 limit. I'm sure none of you have done that. And you get a letter through the door informing you that you have been given three points in your license. A couple of weeks later, another letter. Oh, same camera. Can't believe I've managed to do that. Six points. A few weeks later, same thing happens again. Ah. Oh, Nightmare. I'm going to lose my license. I'm in trouble now. But then another couple of weeks later, you get a letter coming through to say that all the data on that camera had been wiped. You're free. You're free. Now, it might make some kind of difference to the way that you behave. You might think, oh, that wasn't very smart. I'm not going to do that again. That felt bad. I didn't like that. So I'm not going to speed so much anymore. Maybe. And maybe you would also find that you're very grateful to that data being wiped. But you would not love that speed camera. You would have no real desire to want to get to know that speed camera. Even if it was a police officer who had sent you this out, you still wouldn't have any desire to get to know them. You'd just be thankful that you got let off. And sometimes we treat God like that. But that's not who God is. That's not the God we see in Scripture. Thank God he is more than simply a ruler setting the law. Jesus, the Word became flesh, God on earth. He comes not only with the authority of heaven, but the experience of heaven. He comes with a testimony of heaven, verse 32, telling us and showing us that heaven and the God who dwells there is good. And he loves. You've heard the phrase heaven on earth. It's a phrase usually reserved for some spectacular holiday in some dreamy location, or actually a little, I always think it a little strangely, for like something you're eating and oh, it's heavenly. But here we actually see it. Those comments are kind of tongue in cheek. But here in Jesus, we see heaven on earth. Everything he sees and, uh, sorry, everything that we see him do and say is heavenly. It's coming from that source. He is displaying heaven on earth. God is that heavenly source because God is love. And it is the eternal love of God which has so freely flowed between Father and Son and Spirit that is being overflowed. It's flowing over onto the earth through Christ. Notice, uh, verse 34, Jesus is sent by the Father and given every word while receiving the Spirit without limit. Later in chapter 5, Jesus will say, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, 
the Son also does. John wants us to see that Jesus is not only sent with the authority of heaven, but that the authority flows from the generous and loving nature of the Godhead. So in Christ, we see how to live, how to image God, how to live to the glory of God as it flows from heaven. And actually, it's this community of Father, Son, and Spirit that and our, our being made in His image that gives us the desires we have for relationship. And it is only in Him that there is exa- an example of a never-failing, absolutely perfect, completely harmonious relationship in Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it is such good news that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. That's what we saw the last time we were in John. And here is the source of that love. The free-flowing love of Father, Son, and Spirit overflows into the world through Christ. And now, he offers to us to come and receive that same love. It is only because God is eternally happy in himself that it's even possible to consider that we might be eternally happy. That desire in you for eternal life and contentment that lasts, it comes because you're made in the image of a God who has always been and who who forever will be eternally loving. The Puritan pastor John Owen put it this way about how the love of God is seen in Christ. The Son is the fountain and prototype of all love. And all love in the creation was introduced from from this fountain to give a shadow and resemblance of it. That fountain of love is not most clearly seen when the king enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, but when his crown is our thorny curse and our flow is his blood poured out to forgive our sin to free us from the misery of our self-glorification for the joy of a life to the glory of God. It is only by this great act of love that the husband that we all need was able to remove our dirty rags and replace them with righteous, fine linen, whiter-than-white robes. We must stop with our constant attempts to make much of ourselves and our little projects. They may well be worthy things, but done to the glory of self and not to the glory of God, they will end up as nothing more than another dirty rag piled up in that horrible pile of dirty rags that will one day be burnt up. Forgotten and worthless. It is only by the purifying of the king's blood on Good Friday that there is good news. 
It is only by his blood that we can become the clean and empty vessels that can be filled with the purity of the Holy Spirit and share in the joy of Christ that he has come to bring us. Only by surrendering ourselves to him before the cross can we have life in the Spirit. The same Spirit who not only raised Christ from the dead, but sustained his life-giving intimacy and ministry with the Father on the earth. So what we see in Christ and him walking in obedience to his Father and this glorious relationship that they continue to have while he's on the earth, we can have something like that through Christ because we share in his, we are adopted and we share in his sonship. We become children of God. We get to cry out, Abba, Father, as the Spirit fills us because it is the work on the cross that has cleansed us and meant that the Spirit can be poured out on us and we can receive the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God in the Spirit and call out, Abba, Father. And Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, brilliant book, we quote it quite a lot. So if you've not read it, I really recommend you read it. He says this, Closed vents can't be cleaned. Full cups can't be filled. And the Spirit does not enter where we are quietly operating out of self-dependence. But the distraught, the empty, the pleading, the self-despairing, those tired of paying the tax of obedience to God and trying to live on what's left over, theirs are hearts irresistible to the humble Holy Spirit. As we saw earlier in the chapter, without salvation, all of us are by nature headed for what we have chosen. Separation from God and the consequences of our self-glorification which is justice. To make this place and all who dwell in it forever holy, full of joy, fully content, then judgment has to come. We don't want to face up to that in our society. It's true. We've got to keep preaching the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, maybe especially when it is. Do we surrender to Jesus and glorify God? Or do we stop wrestling for self-glorification? Only in the overflowing love of God, most clearly seen on Good Friday, will we find the contentment we so desperately crave. You can be content with Christ today. You can be content in God. Do you believe it?